You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Allison B.A. is the executive director of the ACLU of Maine, where she oversees the organization's legal, legislative, public education, and development activities. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks so much for having me. I know we're especially fortunate because you have a lot going on right now. It is an exceptionally busy time, um, unfortunately. So I guess I want to talk about that. But I know that um, as an attorney, you could have chosen any number of different things to get into, and you chose this. Why? What's your background? Well, I, um, you know, there's so many things that go into creating who we become as people, and it's hard to not look back to sort of the early years to think about what um, what motivated us, what impressions we had, and. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family of activists, of people who were committed to social justice and environmental justice. Um, And so in some ways, I'm not sure it was a choice so much as a destiny to sort of follow in my parents' footsteps. Um, I think, you know, the family joke is that it was sort of, there was no, once I came home in third grade complaining about how the boys wouldn't let me play football during recess. Um, and then planning my, you know, critique to the administration that that was sort of a good sign that probably I was going to be set for a path of, um, of activism. Yeah, that's interesting because other people might have come home in third grade and just been like, well, can't play football, go do something else. And instead it's like, well, how am I going to, how am I going to work on this problem? How am I going to affect change? Yeah, and I was very lucky to be surrounded by people, both in my, my um, many people at the school and my family, who really taught me that um, as a woman I had a right to all of the same advantages that other people um, were being offered, and so that was that was something that was supported, um, that, that, that I had a place in our society, I had a place in our community, and I should be equally participating in that. Define for me, if you would, um, civil liberties. So civil liberties and civil rights is really very much about the relationship between us as individuals and our government. And this country was founded on some wonderful values, aspirational mostly, because um, we weren't really living many of those values at the time the Constitution was created. But they're really sort of a set of guidelines about how we should be treated as individual human beings by our government. Um, And civil liberties is particularly related to our freedom um, to express ourselves, our freedom to not be uh, confined by our government, and our freedom to really participate in our community. So when you talk about our country being founded on um, 
well, a nice set of guidelines for civil liberties. It doesn't mean that our country was actually engaging in these. It really is something that uh, I myself have to find sort of a, a, a new language to talk about because I think many of us who grew up with, uh, I mean, whatever obstacles I faced, they were nothing compared to what many Americans face uh, today. Um, but I think we, it's important that we say that in the Constitution, it is, uh, it is a, a rule book to a certain extent, but even though it was founded on those basic values of equality, we were not honoring that. Um, and it's taken generations, and we're, clearly we're not done. We are not done with a, a quest for people being valued for who they are, no matter what the color of their skin, no matter what religion they practice or no religion. And so, you know, I like to think of our work at the ACLU as trying to help us get closer to those values every day. It's a big thing. I mean, that's, that's an enormous um, aspiration. If, if it were easy, it would have happened a few hundred years ago, right? Absolutely, and so many, um, there's so many ways that our system perpetuates itself and power structures perpetuate itself, and it's not easy. I mean, I, I often say that I am fundamentally an optimist. I could not do this work if I didn't believe in the power of community of connection between individuals and the power for us to, to evolve. I mean, despite what seem to be many setbacks right now, we really have made progress uh, in some areas much more rapidly than others. And some of those thorny issues related to race um, do not seem to be, t you know, sort of moving forward with the speed that other issues have. But we are. We are making progress. And I, um, even back in the 70s, uh, I was able to play football. And, and that was progress from my mother's generation. So we are making incremental change, and I do believe that, that each of us can play a role in getting us closer to those founding ideals of the Constitution. So over time, um, as, as part of the ACLU, have you seen a shift from the types of things that m were being focused upon and are being focused upon now? I, I think that... Um, in some ways in Maine over the last um, six or seven years, we had been confronting some of the very uh, difficult negative issues that now the country is facing. Um, we have seen an increase in, uh, well, I guess what I'd call wedge issues, issues that relate to typically underserved communities, whether that's uh, low-income people, whether that's racial minorities, whether that's um, immigrant status. And so I have seen increasingly, and we have seen in our office, a, um, a real polarization on those issues. And that is manifesting itself in the public discourse, how people talk to each other. And it's definitely representing itself in our state legislature, which uh, I think many people would agree is more divided than it's ever been. How did we get here? How did we get to a place of being so polarized? Oh, I wish I had an answer to that question. Um, I think that some of it comes from the issues we were just talking about. There are some deeply entrenched systemic um, systems of oppression that we as a community have not figured out how to deconstruct, and many people are invested in maintaining those structures. And so I think some people believe that these issues have always been there and we just weren't talking about them. And in a time of 
more rapid media, more ability for us to sort of just talk to ourselves and not talk to other people. Um, we are increasingly saying things um, that are displaying such hostility. Um, so I think there's probably many, many, many reasons that we got here. Um, I think the, the, the result is really incredibly destructive to so many people's lives. And we see that in our office every day. Well, give me some examples of that. What are some of the things that um, people are coming to you needing help with? Mm. So much of what we do at the ACLU is at a sort of larger policy level. Um, we fight for things in the legislature. We file lawsuits to try to have a larger impact. But it's really the stories of the clients who we help that is what sort of keeps us feeling inspired to do our work. Um, Last year, we were able to highlight an issue that many people refer to as debtor's prison. And what it is about is how when low-income people get caught in a cycle in the court system and actually stay locked up in jail because they literally cannot afford to pay their bail or pay their fine. Not because they're a threat to the community, but because they simply don't have enough money to get out. And so this has been referred to as debtor's prison. The Supreme Court has found it to be unconstitutional. And so it's a practice that has been creeping back into the American justice system. So we've been looking to, the, to do that. And we've made a lot of progress. And I'm very pleased with, with the people who are partnering with us. But we actually were able to get a, a young woman who um, we actually had a, a court clerk call us and say, there's this woman, and she can't get out of jail. And she had been in there for 10 months. And we were able to go before the court, take her case, and she was able to go home. And, you know, it's just those real lives. She had been sitting there writing letters and trying to get someone to pay attention. And uh, by some amount of uh, luck, she would get to us and we were able to help her. So it's those actual stories um, of individual lives that help us stay motivated to try to work on the larger issues. Um, Another issue that really um, just happened is about a week and a half ago, the ACLU released a report call, uh, named We Belong Here. And it's based on 10 months of interviews with students and educators around the state about what it's like to be an immigrant kiddo here in Maine. And um, the stories are horrific. Uh, the way our young people who come from different countries, have different color skin, pray to different people or different um, gods are treated is really a wake-up call to those of us who don't experience it on every day. And so hearing these students, uh, particularly now, they're reaching out to us and saying, I can't believe you told our story. Thank you. Like, no one believed that this was happening. And so when they call us and they talk to us and they say, we want to do something. And that's just, you know, that's just makes every hour of <laughs> work worth it, um, that we can help tell stories just like you do um, and bring that to people around Maine. Well, give me examples of some of the things that um, kids are experiencing. So there are, let me start by saying one of the things we did in this report was also identifying all of the unique and exciting programs that are happening in schools. Schools are finding ways to try to combat these problems. Um, and we really wanted to highlight those because we want other schools to feel inspired that, you know, that it's not just this task that they'll never be able to accomplish, but you really can make a difference in kids' lives. But what we're hearing about is sort of systemic and repeated bullying. Um, girls having their hijab yanked at when they walk through the halls. Um, there's a story of a young girl who 
made the varsity soccer team in high school and was so proud. And they got to the finals and the referee would not let her play unless she took off her headscarf, which is illegal, unconstitutional, but yet no one knew to speak up for her. And the ref may not have understood himself. And so she had to make a choice between her religion and participating in this goal that she had worked so long for. Kids shouldn't have to make those choices. Um, there are persistent uh, name-calling, scrawling um, of racial epithets, um, not just to immigrants and, and, um, and black students, but to um, Latino students, uh, any sort of immigrant you might see. So it is, and, and let me say, it's, it, it, most educators would say this is not new, and it certainly extends to the LGBT community, really any group that is not, that has traditionally been targeted. Um, schools are not um, able to protect the, the students in the way that, that the law requires. Is it made more difficult now because there are so many other extenuating circumstances? You know, it used to be students go to school, come home, we have telephones, we don't have computers, we don't have social media, we don't have all these other layers which kind of interconnect people. Is it harder now for schools to get a handle on some of this stuff? Um, so I started my career representing kids, um, and I worked with schools a lot uh, back in the 90s and early 2000s. And there is no doubt that schools are being asked to do 10 times more with 10 times less. Um, so, And then you add um, technology challenges, and I think uh, it is really daunting what they are being asked to do. So yes, I think it is it is harder. I also think it is harder when um, our political landscape um, is full of statements by elected officials that are racially charged um, and really, I think, give permission for, um, for statements to be made um, that schools are trying to figure out how to protect um, their, their environment so that all kids have the ability to, to have access to an education and feel safe to learn. So it's one of the things that I hear often is um, this, this idea of free speech. And mm -hmm. so people will use it on both sides mm -hmm. that I should be able to say whatever I want mm -hmm. because I have the right of free speech. Mm -hmm. And if free speech turns into something hateful mm -hmm. or turns into something that prevents somebody from accessing something that they have a right to, like an education, that seems to be the sticking point. Is that you can't just have people running around saying whatever they feel like because even if they have the right to do it, they're still impacting other people. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think it's important that people remember that the First Amendment applies to government. So this is only when the government is telling one person that they can't speak and another person they can speak. So it's really about a government-individual relationship. Um, in the context of um, schools, though, you're absolutely right. Um, there comes a time when speech can create such a hostile environment that it impacts other people's rights to access and education. And so um, the First Amendment is not, uh, it, it is not a defense to, um, to allowing speech that is denying other people their rights sort of just to go rampantly. And I think, you know, it's very popular to just say, oh, I have a First Amendment right to say that. 
Um, you have a right to not have the government restrict you in certain contexts, but there's many ways that government has reasonable ability to restrict that. So um, I think that's what the schools are re wrestling with. Um, but our laws in, in Maine are pretty clear that, that um, the school does have the ability to make sure, you know, to sort of limit what's happening in the, in the, in the uh, school classroom to make sure people can, can actually learn. One of the things I wonder about as the mother of a 21-year-old daughter and a 24-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter is, is it because we've come so far in so many ways that maybe there's this sense that we could just, just sit back and relax and not have to work too much harder in areas like um, maybe gender equality? Mm. I don't, I'm not sure how you feel about this. I know you also have children and you've worked in the educational field, so... Tell me what you think. It's really interesting um, thinking about women's rights in relation to other uh, other rights, and you know, um, is our work done? I mean, I would say no. <laughs> um, if you look at even the um, who's in leadership in Maine, um, you see few. You know, even in nonprofits, you don't see as many women leaders. Uh, I always find it's interesting if you look at the nonprofits that that the largest nonprofits in Maine, so the largest budgets, those are all run by men. Um, so I think we still have a long way to go at um, making sure that women are also in leadership roles. Um, and I think it's also, that's a, women's rights are an example where we feel that, you know, it, it, it is so much better than it was that, that there's sometimes a sense of um, that we've done enough. I guess the thing that strikes me most right now um, and reminds me that women's justice issues are as important as ever is what we're seeing in the reproductive health care arena. Um, we are seeing, I mean, I, my mother has worked, I, I followed in her footsteps, she's worked in women's rights. She was working on access to abortion in the 70s. And, you know, I, I'm with many women of her age, you know, on a daily basis. And they're like, how did this happen that we are not only fighting for access to reproductive care and the ability to decide whether we have children, you know, and when we have children, we, we're fighting for access to birth control. I mean, the very things that allow women to fully participate in the society are being stripped away. And so I think that that is the most obvious place where um, where you can see that actually those rights are very much under assault, um, as much as on racial justice and immigration rights. Um, women are, are equally targeted right now, and we need to continue to really fight for those. I think for many people that um, I've spoken with, there's this sense of shock mm -hmm. that something that we have finally achieved, that we've finally taken for granted, even the ability to get birth control pills and have them paid for by insurance, um, to go to, to backslide and backslide so dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, I think it tells us just how shaky that might have been in the first place. It's <laughs> a great point. Um, and, and I think there's been a lot, of, I mean, so one of the things that is so inspiring right now is to see the level of engagement and activism happening in Maine, happening all over the country. People are re-engaging in their political process. Um, and I think engaging at a local level, which is, I think, where real change will happen. So I think that that is really inspiring. I think you're absolutely right. It was, um, 
it was always shaky, and I think that's probably a fair critique of uh, people like me, of people um, whose rights were protected and sort of was not paying attention to enough that for many groups it never actually came there. Um, and so I think this is a, a really important moment for progressive leaders to recognize that um, sometimes we have stopped fighting for movements once we've gotten what we've wanted. And we need to really be, make sure that everyone is having a seat at the table. Everybody is included. And um, in the long run, if we build that movement, that everyone is, is equally valued and equally part of it, um, and that we don't give away rights for some groups just to get them for others, um, I think we will build the lasting change that we want to see so that our daughters, great-granddaughters, sort of this, this will be not a thing anymore. So do these seats at the table include people that don't necessarily think the way that we do? Ah, what a great question. Um, and I don't know that I have a great answer to that. I think that... I do think that the way we've become estranged from each other is part of the problem. I think we all like to see the narrative that we like to see. I think the soundbite culture doesn't help this. People are looking for just a phrase as opposed to a deep conversation. I think for all of our American bravado, we actually aren't very thick-skinned. And I think we have trouble having difficult conversations. So I think, um, yes, I do think that those conversations need to happen. When I think about in what order, I think some of it is there's still enough work to be done, <laughs> even within the community that is sort of trying to advocate for more equality and more freedom. That group needs to do a little more work with itself to make sure everyone's at that table um, before maybe we tackle those issues. But I think you're, you're absolutely right to, to focus on it, that we've let ourselves off the hook at the Thanksgiving table or um, in those just moments when you're out with someone and you're talking to them and they say something and you're like, ooh, ooh, do I say something? Do I, do I talk about why that hurts? Uh, or do I just pretend it didn't happen? And I think we have to do a lot more talking about what hurts. I had a conversation the other day about somebody that I am doing a profile on for Oldport Magazine, and one of the things that came up was that if, if you aren't liberal enough, then you can be as progressive and liberal as um, almost anybody around you, but if you're not liberal enough, then you actually you don't even get a seat at that table. So when you're saying, like even working within our own group, that's what comes up for me, mm. is is this idea that only some people have the right to talk, and those mm -hmm. are the people that have what are believed to be the right answers, ov way over on one side. Mm -hmm. And this and this bothers me as somebody that has, um, I, I have tried to be thoughtful about my life. Mm -hmm. You know, I have tried to be thoughtful about my children and my patients and the way that I live. And so the silencing that I have felt myself mm -hmm. doing, um, because I'm not, I don't have, I don't have as far leaning of you as some people. It, it actually makes me feel like mm -hmm. I'm more in step with maybe people on the other side. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to get to the place where I am that angry, that mm -hmm. I am that polarized. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I mean, the solution for me 
um, because I promise you at the ACLU, there's always people left of me. <laughs> And there's always people right of me. I mean, we are a, as an, a, as an organization, we confuse people constantly because we take positions on both sides. Um, what has been really resonating for me in the last few years, as we've grown, we've, we've become a much larger staff. We've been able to hire a lot more young people. Um, and it is a constant lesson in humility. I mean, I am just amazed at how how often I see the world through the world that I grew up in and that um, and really paying attention to how defensive I get in that situation. And I'm, so, I'm very fortunate because when I am called out, it is called out in a very supportive and you know engaged, thoughtful process. And I think the problem is it's not always done that way. And, um, but I do think that for me, I have softened a lot more into that experience um, of humility, which is not a, does not come easily to me, <laughs> of sort of, I might have something more to learn, um, and trying to um, not see it as a critique that I don't have the cred to do it, that, you know, um, which I may not. I haven't experienced many of the things that are happening, but just trying to be open to the listening um, and I, you know, I, I am considered to be a fairly, you know, on the progressive end, so I may not feel it the same way someone else would feel it. Um, but I, I am finding that more conversations slowing down, which we don't really give ourselves time to do as working professionals, um, makes that easier to sort of go deep on those conversations, which can get really hard. I mean, you know, we've dedicated our lives to trying to make things better. And it's really hard when someone says, you know what, you could still do it better. <laughs> so for what it's worth, uh, I am finding that to be the most helpful tool in these situations. I agree, I, I enjoy watching my daughter who has a gender studies mm. and history uh, concentration in her education. I enjoy watching her have conversations with people of varying inclinations because when she started, she she had learned some things and she's very intelligent and she was and she was more stringent and over time she has learned that in order to actually keep a conversation going she can't be as stringent and strident and um, focused on only her own views she actually has to she has to do that and then when she does that I've seen other people who are having a conversation with her open up about their own experiences and be more open to her point of view. So really, it, I think it can be useful on both sides that people, if they are, if they're able to listen, if they're able to not be defensive, as you've said, um, it can really get you much further in mutual understanding. Yeah, and I, I would imagine in your medical work, I mean, it's hard because we are hardwired to go into fight or flight. And so, you know, when someone is saying something, I think it's, it, it really is hard not. And, and I don't claim to not, you know, my first reaction isn't always <laughs> gentle. But, you know, the, 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 I do think ultimately when you soften into that, that is when the relationships deepen and, and you really can understand what someone is saying. Um, but that's not what the, to your earlier point, that's not what our modern culture expects. It's the soundbite, it's the tweet, it's the line that will get attention. None of this encourages deeper understanding. And there are some times, honestly, where you have to 
stand up and mm-hmm. you have to use your voice and you can't be softening and mm-hmm. you can't be I mean none of us wants to engage in conflict but sometimes there are, conflict is required it just is a necessity absolutely and I think really what we're trying to make sure at least at the ACLU is that those people who need to be able to have their voices heard have the power and the support to speak well, that is a perfect way to end this conversation, which um, I think is very interesting and very appropriate given what's going on in the world these days. I hope that people will take the time to learn more about what the ACLU is doing, because obviously we're just touching the very surface of um, some of the things that uh, you are working on right now. I've been speaking with Allison B.A., who is the executive director at the ACLU of Maine, where she oversees the organization's legal, legislative, public education, and development